Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 72, The Empire Strikes Back. So last week we'd put one foot back on the revolutionary road on the political events. This week, let's get on with it. Things had started reasonably well then in 1258 with the reforming movement. Of the baronial council's three priorities after the Oxford Parliament, the Pope had shown the parents the palm of his hand, but the heirs and the reorganisation of the sheriffs had gone ahead. The last priority, then, was to get the peace with France sorted. So, in late 1258, the Council sent a delegation to France to meet with Louis. Just to recap on where negotiation was, the essential outlines are pretty clear. Basically, Henry had to wave goodbye to the lands of his father in Normandy, Maine, Touraine, Anjou and Poitou. In return, he would receive confirmation of Gascony from Louis, with some extensions around Saint-Ange in the north of Gascony, and the Agenais to the east. There is a map, by the way, on the website. All a bit painful for a red-blooded Englishman, but look, Henry had tried, failed miserably to get anywhere, so probably best to cut and run and accept the realities of life. And also, I'm not quite sure how red-blooded Henry III was anyway. There was one obstacle, though, and the obstacle's name was Eleanor de Montfort, formerly Eleanor, sister of Henry. The last thing Louis wanted was to make a treaty with Henry and then find some other member of the family starting to make claims, turning the whole affair into some soap opera-like struggle over the family will when Henry died. So he demanded that King John's other immediate descendants, Richard of Cornwall and Eleanor and their children, give him a quit claim, i.e. renounce their own claims and rights to any of these lands. Henry and Richard were fine with this. Eleanor was not. She was not because the high-minded, fervently religious Simon de Montfort, her husband, of course, was cynically determined to screw every last possible drop of personal advantage from Eleanor's claims. It's a real problem, this reading of de Montfort. But the way to look at it, I think, is that this is a man who does everything large. He is really, really, really keen on reform. 
He is really, really, really keen on God. He is really, really, really keen on making his fortune and securing the future of his family. Either way, de Montfort and a baronial delegation set out for France to meet with King Louis in November 1258, leaving Henry at home. Worth pointing out, by the way, that de Montfort was chosen not just because of his eminence within the baronial movement, but because he was seriously well-connected with the French court. The de Montfort family were a big noise in France. Simon de Montfort had a lot of influence with Louis right up to the point when basically Louis had to choose between de Montfort and Henry in 1264. They shared the same passion for religious principles and the proper treatment of the poor. However, this time, Louis was having none of it. He refused to meet them without Henry. Oops. Ah, I hear you say. So, presumably, de Montfort legged it back to England to help out with the reform movement. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But apparently not. Over the next year, de Montfort would have relatively little to do with the detail of reform, and in fact, he would spend most of his time kicking his heels in France with his mates. I wouldn't want you to misjudge this. I don't think it means that he was any way lukewarm about the reform programme. Indeed, once he'd taken his oath to the provisions of Oxford, de Montfort was in it as deep as you can go. There's more evidence of his commitment to the principles of the provisions of Oxford from this period when he has his will done. He uses language far and above the normal in seeking to help the poor of his lands. Here's a sample where he says that his executors were to make sure that, and I quote, the poor of my land are provided for from my goods, and namely the cultivators, whose goods I have had many times, and I suspect that in the eyes of some I've done harm. No, hate it or loathe it, it's no good trying to paint de Montfort as a cynical man who supports the reform movement just for personal interests. He believes this stuff. The most recent work on this is by a chap called Maddicott, and his book is pretty convincing on this point. So, how to explain his absence from England at such a crucial time? The way I read it is that we're not dealing with a man here who's interested in the detail. He'll leave that for the little people and get involved when there are grand gestures needed. As far as the Montford is concerned, it's all being handled. He can look after his private ambitions, such as getting hold of some land in Gascony and doing a spot of hunting with his pals. Call me if you think there's an iceberg coming up, but the phone's on silent. What's clear, though, is that there are consequences of all this. Matthew Paris said that his absences mutilated the baronial council. There's no doubt that progress slowed up. There was no appearance There was no appearance of the body of legislation that everyone expected. The Earl of Gloucester, Richard de Clare, began to be seen as the main baronial leader, and given his less than complete dedication to the cause, that didn't help. And the king, well, he had some powerful friends back in town as well, notably little brother Richard. However, de Montfort was good enough to come back for the Candlemas Parliament of the 9th of February. You'll remember that the provisions of Oxford had specified that there should be three parliaments a year, whether the king liked it or not, come rain or shine, and if you don't like it, king, you can just lump it, that sort of thing. So duly parliament there was, and de Montfort, as I say, was a man for the big occasion, so back he came. He took the opportunity to make it quite clear to the council about what he was doing with his wife's quitclaim. He told them that he had loads of debts outstanding from Henry, and until they were settled, his wife wouldn't be renouncing her claim to her morning piece of toast and marmalade, let alone to large swathes of southwestern France. Meanwhile, in Parliament, by a declaration called the Ordinance of the Magnates, we get some forward movement. On the reform programme, 
as the major barons made specific commitments to be bound by the same rules as the king. It's a radical extension of their commitment to reform. The document was sealed at the Parliament by Declare and de Montfort together, a clear sign of their now dual leadership, and supposedly a public declaration of their solidarities. So, all looks hunky-dory and generally speaking tickety-boo, but look far away to the corner of the sky and there you'll see that biblical cloud no bigger than a man's hand approaching fast. Because getting to that point really hadn't been easy. There had been an earlier document more radical than the ordinance. The fact that it had been watered down was probably due to declare. It was mathering, dithering and generally backsliding. Come on guys, our job is done here, he was saying. Do you really want everyone looking at our dirty linen as well as the king's? He and de Montfort had a blazing row. De Montfort is reported to have turned on Declare during the argument and said, I do not want to live or have dealings with men so fickle and deceitful. And eventually Declare was forced to sign up. But I suspect he remained grumpy about the whole thing. And for the whole thing to work, both these guys had to work together. And they were very much in each other's company. So, straight after Parliament, they were sent over to France again to try to move on that blessed treaty. But once again, the obstacle wasn't really with Louis. It was in the Baron's own camp, with de Montfort. So now it was time for Declare to have a go at de Montfort, as de Montfort steadfastly refused to bow to pressure and produce Eleanor's quitclaim, until he had his pound of flesh. We know that the two men again quarrelled violently, and here's another feature of the man. De Montfort was a hard, unyielding kind of guy had the ability and charisma to make people follow him, but not the flexibility in the end to make it all work. And he's inflexible now. Gloucester shouts at him, but the storm fails to bend the tree. We know this because Gloucester... Oh, and by the way, just so that we're clear, Gloucester, declare, same person, right? Gloucester then comes back to England. De Montfort stays in France for a bit more hunting and general messing around with the fam. And over the next few months... The council led by Gloucester does their level best to make the guy happy. His debts are cleared. Payments are made in respect of Eleanor's original dowry. And by July, things seem to be moving forward at last. And then, bam! De Montfort hit them all with another claim. The De Montforts now claimed that they should be paid in arrears for all of this sort of thing. And that it was all worth much more anyway than they'd actually been saying. So could the king now please hand over 36,400 marks, if you'd be so kind? I mean, come on, what was the guy thinking? Surely he can't have thought the king could cope with this sort of level. At very least, de Montfort was trying to get the best deal he could. At worst, did he have some political motive for refusing to let the treaty go forward? There was one other powerful and important figure who didn't want the treaty to go forward, and this was Prince Edward. You can imagine a young prince not wanting to give up all the family inheritance. Is it possible that part of de Montfort's quite outrageous behaviour had something to do with a hook-up there? This is, after all, what happens later, i.e. there's a hook-up between de Montfort and Prince Edward, but there's absolutely no evidence, I think, that this further claim is connected with it, but it's an interesting piece of speculation. Whatever. I don't think you can excuse de Montfort for this. Clearly, he believed he was within his rights, but he was on his own, and it shows a lamentable lack of flexibility and commitment to other priorities, i.e., the reform programme. Henry tried to get round it by suggesting to Louis that they sign the treaty and Henry promised to then cover the costs of any future claim by Eleanor. But Louis wouldn't buy that. And then, would you add a believe it, de Montfort made another claim on Henry in Gascony 
Henry must have been steaming, but the other barons must have been steaming to boot. I mean, whose side was the bloke on? Basically, everything then stalled until the October meeting of Parliament, at which point a group of knights came forward and expressed their dissatisfaction at how everything was going. Basically, this group of knights called themselves the Community of the Bachelors of England, and they protested to Lord Edward and the Earl of Gloucester that nothing had been done for the common good. What's striking about this is that it's de Clare, not de Montford, who is seen as the baronial leader. And also, that it was Edward who came forward and swore to support the bachelors to the death. Edward was manoeuvring. He was hanging out his flag for an alliance. He wanted to get out from the control of his father and mother. He wanted to stop that French peace. And he does seem to be genuinely attached to the reform programme. His problem was that he detested de Clare. So that wasn't the answer. His target was de Montford. So, by the end of October, de Montford and Edward had signed an agreement, which by all accounts is pretty much impenetrable, except that it clearly signalled that the two of them were now officially in cahoots. Edward had also reoccupied Bristol Castle, under dispute with the de Clares, and he clearly felt that he had removed the parental thumbprint from his forehead. In addition, the bachelors achieved their objectives, since only a few short weeks later, a legal document called the Provisions of Westminster was produced. I can only guess how pleased you will be to hear that these provisions are available on my website. Actually, they're much more dense than the provisions of Oxford, so I don't necessarily endorse the idea of you reading them unless you're super keen. But, in detail, the provisions were the high point of the reformers' programme, implementing the changes demanded at both royal and magnet level. Together with the provisions of Oxford, they stand as one of the major events towards the creation of England's parliamentary democracy. Things, unfortunately, were soon to come unstuck for the baronial party, and it all started with Henry's visit to France. On the face of it, there was no point in going. After all, there was an impasse about Eleanor's quit claim. But somehow, Henry had persuaded Louis that an answer had to be found. So Louis suggested a compromise. The treaty made provision for money to be paid to Henry. 15,000 marks of that money would be put aside to be paid only when de Montfort's claims had been agreed. There was nowhere left now for de Montfort to wriggle or turn. Eleanor gave the quit claim. The Treaty of Paris was signed in 1259. The Angevin Empire was finally dead. England and France were at peace, and de Montfort had lost his lever with the king. De Montfort stormed back to England without asking for Henry's permission, further evidence of his contempt for the man and causing further offence. As far as Henry was concerned, de Montfort had shown continual bad faith and obstructiveness, and no Hector has ever been quite as unhappy. And he had some reason for it. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, we're now into 1260. Henry was no doubt enjoying his time at the French court, being wined and dined and fated by his brother-in-law Louis, rather than hectored and pushed around by a bunch of jumped-up barons who clearly didn't appreciate the true dignity of a king. So he made no hurry to come back. Plus, he made sure that he kept around him the most royalists of the baronial party, de Clare and Peter of Savoy, the principal amongst them. Backsliding and the turning of worms was now much in evidence. 
and in February he launched the greatest comeback since Lazarus. As we've mentioned, there were supposed to be three parliaments a year, and there was to be one in February, but Henry sent a letter back to Blighty saying that on no condition was Parliament to be held while he was away, which was effectively a direct challenge to the provisions of Oxford. De Montford saw it for what it was straight away, and before you could say Jack Robinson was back in London to hold Parliament in defiance of the King. But at this point, de Montford's mates failed him. The justicier, Hugh Biggert, told him to adjourn the meeting. Basically, this next period will be driven by the fact that the baronial party are simply not prepared to consider military force and open rebellion against the king. And for the most part, they have a fatal lack of unity. De Clare arrived back in England and suddenly started to look for all the world like the king's representative. And for the end of April, the king's tenants-in-chief were ordered to assemble with some rather eye-opening exclusions. Simon de Montfort, for one, but all of Edward's nearest and dearest too, from those household knights like Roger Leyburn and Roger Clifford to the most powerful of his marcher friends like Roger Mortimer. Both king and queen wanted Edward back in his box, and de Clare wanted him out of his castle at Bristol to boot. For a while, the threat of military action did raise its ugly head, as de Clare and de Montfort began to raise separate armies, and London panicked. But the arrival of Richard of Cornwall calmed things down. The long and short was that Henry arrived back at the end of April in a minor blaze of glory. Edward was returned to favour, but at the price of reinstatement of the parental thumbprint, he was forced to remove himself from Bristol and his household supporters from their castles. De Montford was now dangerously isolated. He still had Edward's sympathies, but for the moment Edward had been emasculated, and now Henry felt strong enough to put de Montford on trial. Now, say what you like about de Montford, but wimp he was not. Henry had not yet declared his full hand. Publicly, at least, he's still talking about how wonderful the good old provisions of Oxford are, how much he loves them. He's fibbing, by the way, but in public, at least, de Montford is on trial for his transgressions. It's not the baronial reformers that are on trial. De Montford was being charged with obstructing the peace with France and for his resistance to the king. Now his answers in the trial were apparently taken down pretty much verbatim, and apparently many of them read like a conversation with a disenchanted teenager about the day's events at school. So we're talking no and yes. And if the term whatever had been invented at the time, no doubt there would have been that too. On occasion he'd veer into sarcasm, at which point the teenager parallel clearly fails us. Not. But basically, back to my wimp point. De Montford was having none of it, isolated or not. And was he saved by the bell? The bell in question in July 1260 was the capture of Bilth Castle in Wales by Llewellyn Ap Griffith. So the trial was called off. Henry called for a muster at Chester, which, as though to prove nothing had changed, he then cancelled. But it distracted them all away from the De Montford trial, and the reality is that De Montford still had plenty of friends, especially at the French court, as well as Edward. It's quite possible that once again Henry bottled it. In the background, the reformers' disunity meant they were in trouble. A special heir or circuit of justices had been planned early in the year to implement the provisions of Westminster. Henry managed to have this postponed and ultimately shelved. But despite this, de Montford seems to have recovered his influence at court. And in the late 1260s, he's all over court like a rash, signing charters here, there and everywhere. 
It really is actually quite breathtaking. Better at bouncing back than a rubber ball. And it's not as though he's embarrassed about what he's done with the king. In fact, in the October Parliament of 1260, he deeply offended the king by appointing a deputy without the king's permission. And that deputy was Henry of Almain, the son of Richard of Cornwall. He also managed to get Bigard replaced by his own man, Hugh de Spencer. De Spencer being a family name by the way that you should file away for 70 years' time. The thing is that despite all the pain and trouble he's caused, de Montfort hasn't yet broken the aristocratic code. He's still one of the inner circle by blood and by marriage. Now when he does break the code, the results will be vicious. It's also clear that he did pay a price for his reinstatement. Firstly, the council agreed that the magnates could hear the complaints themselves against their own bailiffs. Secondly, the sheriffs for the year were not replaced as they were supposed to do annually. Both of these allowed an extension of baronial power and were against one of the core principles of the provisions of Oxford. Basically, the declares were getting their way, but allowing de Montfort and the council to stay in the game. But then in 1261, Henry launched a well-planned and well-executed political attack, which is uncharacteristically sharp and effective. Almost as though he had help. Which is actually true. Queen Eleanor and her Savoyard friends had condoned the crisis of 1258 because it got rid of the Lusignan. But Eleanor wasn't the kind of person to suffer the baronial dominance if she could help it. So, together with Peter of Savoy and Richard of Cornwall, they planned the royal fight back. So, here was the campaign. In January, Henry and Eleanor secretly sent a trusted man to see the Pope to get an absolution from his oath to the provisions of Oxford. It had taken a bit of time, but we've already seen the papal attitude, deeply anti-reformer, so it was unlikely to be a problem, but it would just take a few weeks. Now, he was helped by the fact that he'd got his son out of the way. Edward had naffed off to France to play the tournament games with his mates, including the de Montfort boys, by the way. Ah, the innocence and follies of youth. In February, Henry and Eleanor moved to the Tower, which is well stocked with provisions and men, and summoned a number of minor barons to come to the forthcoming Candlemas Parliament, fully armed. He was clearly expecting trouble. And you can see why, because in the Parliament he launched an attack on the Council. He attacked their inability to restore the royal finances, their slowness to complete the treaty with France, and the fact that they'd overridden his appointments as ministers. Basically, his charge was that the leaders of the council had overstepped their authority. Note, he still didn't attack the provisions directly. He was still talking about his loyalty to those. He's still fibbing, by the way. The result was an agreement to go to arbitration. Again, the barons had no stomach for violence. Henry and Eleanor continued to build their position, while the barons dithered. William de Valence, the chief Lusignan, was back in town, he threw Hugh Bigot out of Dover Castle in favour of his own man. Still, the barons didn't act. And at this point, King and Queen were helped by the return to the royal faction of Prince Edward. The prince had spent a small fortune on the tournament circuit, he was skint, and needed help from the folks. And anyway, Dad was saying he loved the provisions, so the cause of reform was safe, so why not? Which meant that Edward may have been disgusted as anyone when in May, at the Parliament of Winchester, Henry finally declared his full hand. He revealed his papal absolution, refusing to be bound by the provisions of Oxford and Westminster, and appointed his own justicier and chancellor in the place of the councils. From now on, he said, he'd rule as he ever had done, without the council. Throughout this time, the baronial party should have been hardened by a wave of protest and unrest. 
Henry had replaced the sheriffs with his own men, but in 24 counties, rival sheriffs were appointed by the local knights and the barons. The royal heirs at Hartford and Worcester, heirs of the old type, from Henry to work up money for the royal finances, had to be suspended because of local resistance. To this time round, it was really leadership that failed. The reformers had behind them a uniquely broad set of supporters, ready to help them make baronial government work in each locality. But now at last, disgust with royal duplicity stirred the baronial party into action. For once, there was an impressively unified list of magnates lining up against the king and queen. Gloucester and de Montfort were reunited and condemned the papal bulls. They were joined by Norfolk, his brother Hugh Bigard, John of Warren, Hugh Dispenser. Prince Edward didn't return to the baronial fold, but he did, interestingly, retire to Gascony, and basically stayed out of the way, which in effect was a kind of abstention. In fear, Henry and Eleanor stuck to living in the tower for safety. But this time they steadfastly retained the initiative, negotiating with one hand and building up the big stick with the other. They called him foreign mercenaries. For the October 1261 Parliament again, a group of minor barons came, fully armed, to support them. The royal couple was in control, feeling good, finally paying back for the humiliation of the last few years. But in the end, their biggest and most powerful weapon was the attitude of the magnates themselves, because they still could not contemplate violence. And then Richard declared a big girl's blouse, jumped ship and joined the royal party in return for some unspecified bribe to make sure he was well gruntled. And unfortunately, that was that. In November, they signed an agreement which looked like a compromise with lots of arbitration and all that sort of thing, but actually even Simon de Montfort's affinity signed it, and it basically meant that Henry and Eleanor could do what on earth they liked, and the provisions were dead. De Clare was simply too powerful for the reform movement to survive without him, a king within a kingdom. Richard de Clare had always been a reluctant reformer, had almost certainly been wound up by de Montfort on a number of occasions, and the call of extra land and a bit of cash proved too much to resist. De Montfort knew full well what this meant. He left for France, declaring he would rather die landless than abandon the truth and live as a perjured man. Say what you like about de Montfort, but not only was he not a wimp, he also had made a commitment to the provisions of Oxford. He believed in reform, and although he was a venal, fanatical and surprisingly arrogant loony, he had more backbone and commitment to the cause than all the other barons put together. But it now looked to be all over, and if it wasn't for the fact that the king was a blithering idiot, and the queen suffered from an excessive love of control and power, it could well have been. Poor old Henry and Eleanor have one more monumental, honest-to-goodness, no-poo bloomer to come. But we will have to leave their monumental, honest-to-goodness, no-poo bloomer for next week, since I think that is a good place for us to leave it this week. Let's leave Henry and his wife basking in their success for a little while. But before I go, Diane made one of the comments on the coin giveaway about me recommending Great Hikes. So I'm doing this at the end, by the way, so that anyone who doesn't want to hear me burbling on about walking holidays can stop here and miss no history. But briefly, Diane, let me tell you about one glorious summer when I spent a week walking and camping along the 100 miles of the Ridgeway Path that goes from the slightly unglamorous location of Swindon to the even less glamorous Luton. It's an ancient trail. And as you walk along it, you can feel the feet and the worries of countless generations who have walked the same path. Plus, you go through Iron Age forts such as Barbary Castle. Now, I love the proper demanding walks of northern England, but for a sense of history, the Ridgeway was my favourite. Plus, my house is not far from it at one point, so you can pop in for a cup of tea. OK, that's done. And my thanks to all of you for listening and for all your comments and so on. 
Next week, I suspect I'll take a week off, so all we'll have is the announcement of the Great Coin giveaway result. So good luck all, and have a great week.